Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 11, verse 24. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray you would add your blessing to it now in every way, Lord, especially we want it to get into our hearts and minds and lives. We want to live it out and work it out and put it on display and thereby know you better. We pray for our pastor, Emmanuel, that you would anoint him with the power from on high to preach your word. Amen. Good morning, and I am so glad to be here sharing God's word with you, especially the book of Proverbs, which is a very practical book. We're approaching it in a different way, isn't it? Because it's really wisdom for living. It's not little rules that are absolute. It's not the law of gravity. It's not even the law of forgiveness by faith in Christ. These are observations for how life works. And our text opens with a puzzle. Verse 24, Proverbs 11. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. It's like a magic trick. It doesn't make sense. This is not the way things are supposed to be. It's baffling until you learn the secret behind it. In 1983, there was a magician. Some of you may recognize the name, David Copperfield. And he performed this magic trick which baffled everybody. It was performed before a live audience in Manhattan on an outdoor stage, and it was televised live, and he made the Statue of Liberty disappear. Remarkable. Everybody was amazed by what had happened. Nobody could figure out until... Sometime later, they figured out what was happening behind the scenes. And that's what's true here. Verse 24 seems all wrong, impossible. This is something nobody can do. This is not something that is possible in life. And yet, it's the way things work. It confounds the foolish who don't know why it works. But in a foolish world, the wise live by this law of life. There's one who scatters and yet increases. So as we look at this text, 24 through 26, I'd like you to just focus on three things. Generosity enriches God's people first. Second, the secret which makes it so. And thirdly, why God loves generous people. So 24 opens with this riddle of life. There's one who scatters and yet increases all the more. Scatters means to disperse. It's a wider word, so some of our English translations put it, there's one who gives freely. It is not a word that refers to putting things in carefully, analytically, you know, doing a lot of study before you invest your money. It's not referring to analysis and tidiness, but it's about giving generously, even as one commentator puts it, it's about giving brashly. That's what the word scattering means. I think a scattering of a farmer of his seeds is a good picture of it. Some of you may have seeded your lawn this way. You take a handful of grass seed and you throw it around. You spread it on the ground. You don't take and put a hole in the ground and put one grass seed in and then another hole and another grass seed. No, you just spread it around. And the farmer does the same thing, except not with grass seed, but with some sort of grain, 
which could have been kept and ground up and he could make bread out of it or donuts out of it. Wouldn't that be great? But no, instead he takes handfuls of it and just scatters it. That's what it's talking about. And what happens? He says, here's the riddle. What comes to that farmer? Poverty, hunger, want? No. Instead, these seeds sprout and grow and they multiply hundred, maybe a thousandfold. So, scatter. In fact, the very word suggests, doesn't it, holding something lightly. I mean, it's seeds going through your fingers. They're overflowing out of your hand. You're not grabbing them. You're not grasping them. And so here it's saying that the heart of generosity is holding our money and our goods lightly. But how can giving leave you with more? That's the puzzle. See, that's the riddle here. Actually, the puzzle gets a little worse because then the second part of verse 24, Proverbs 11 says, and there is one who withholds, see, he's going to try it. He says, this makes no sense. So there's one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. He withholds what is justly due. Again, the word justly due might convey the idea of what is owed legally by contract, but again, the word is broader. For example, the English translations, other ones than our pew one, say what he should give or what he could give. It's talking really about generosity. And so here in 24b is one who is stingy. This is the Ebenezer Scrooge of Proverbs. He's saying, I'm going to hoard all my money and I know what will happen. I'm going to be happy and full and fat and everything is going to be good in my life. And so you'd expect him to be happy. We'd expect him to have a full, rich life surrounded by loved ones and just laughing and joyful all through life. But here's the surprise. It results in want. He ends up in poverty. He ends up in need. This surprising result is mentioned again in verse 26. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. And you think, what's it talking about? Well, here's a miser who says, I'm going to hold on to this grain because, you know what, I realize that the crop yield was low this year, so if I hold on to it, the prices are going to go up and I'm going to sell it later. I don't care if the people are hungry. I don't care if they need it now. I don't care about the commands of God. All I care about is making as much money as I can. It's a smart move, you have to admit. He knows how the market works. He's making, yes, it's a risk, but it's a risk that's going to gain him great reward. And yet, surprisingly, this smart woman, this smart man, finds that poverty comes to him. So it's this riddle, this strange pattern of life that Solomon has observed. Why is it? How can this be? David Copperfield's magic trick making the Statue of Liberty disappear was absolutely baffling until they publicized, much to his displeasure, the secret behind that trick. Now, I can't tell it to you completely. You should go look it up. But basically, what happened was that the outdoor stage had the Statue of Liberty as a backdrop, and unbeknownst to anybody, when a curtain went down on the Statue of Liberty, hiding it, the whole stage turned. And when the curtain went up, they were aiming at a completely different spot. Amazing. And it's seen, yeah, I know, it's silly, isn't it? Once you know it, you say, well, of course, I could have done that. See, that once you know the secret behind these riddles, behind these tricks of life, they make perfectly good sense to you. And in our text, 
There's a power. There's a great power working behind the scenes. And we know who it is. It's verse 25. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. There's an invisible hand that makes this trick, if you want to call it, this puzzle, work out the way it does. Most people don't know this hand. They don't recognize whose hand this is, but you and I do. We call him Father. We call him Lord. We sing praises to him. There's someone who's working behind the scenes. So why aren't misers like Ebenezer Scrooge, why aren't they rich and full and happy and satisfied in life? Well, because it's the one who waters others who is himself or herself watered. Those who water are watered. Well, being watered implies there's somebody doing the watering. There's a gardener. Who is this gardener who goes around looking for flowers to water, generous people to water? Well, the finger here is pointing to God who notices your generosity and blesses your life according to his will. He who waters will be watered. So what are the blessings that this great God gives to those who are generous? Well, yes, it could be money. In Proverbs chapter 3, for example, verse 8 and 9, it speaks of those who are generous being blessed by God so that their fields abound. Fields is the result of their labor. You do well at your work. You're rewarded at your work. Yes, even financially, you're given raises. People smile upon you. Your employers like you. The generous one is, yes, rewarded financially. But we have to be careful because we're told by Christ Jesus that sometimes money is a curse. Remember in Matthew chapter 19, he said that it's harder for a rich person to get into heaven than for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle. It's difficult because money makes us satisfied. It makes us content. It makes us happy. Who needs God? My life is perfectly fine the way it is. So the question really is, suppose you could be wealthy. Suppose you could have all the money you wanted. Billions. But suppose it cost you the privilege of going to heaven. Would you make that trade? So yeah, sometimes the blessings are money, but sometimes that's the worst thing to have. We don't want money if it keeps us from God, because sometimes money can be a curse, and we don't want that to be true. Proverbs 38 and 9 has this great promise. It says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, that I may not be full and deny you and say, Who's the Lord? Or that I may not be in want or in poverty and steal and profane the name of my God. Just keep me in the middle, Lord. (laughs) Not too rich, not too poor. I think that's wise. That's a wise statement. But here's the truth. Here's what verse 25 says. God waters the generous. A life that is watered by God is one who is generous. And we know the one who waters us. He blesses us as he chooses. Is it money, 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 money? Well, the wise prefer other things to money. The wise know that money is not as satisfying as they used to think. In fact, there's much better things. So here's some things that Proverbs mentions, for example. I'll tell you, there's one thing that the older you get, I'll say this to the younger people, the older you get, the more you'll realize it's worth more than gold. It's your reputation what people think of you, whether they think highly of you, whether they respect you, whether they honor you. 
and you can't get it once you lose it very easily. It's very hard to regain, but it's very hard to even gain the first time. In Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The wise understand that. How about a life free of trouble? How about if you had all the money in the world, but constant trouble and agitation in your life? Proverbs chapter 15, verse 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. On one hand, we all agree with that, don't we? But on the other hand, we'll say, I'm willing to risk a little trouble if I can be fabulously rich. Many say that, but the wise understand what the writer of Proverbs is saying. And I'll tell you something else that's a great treasure, something you can't buy with all the money in the world. It's to be surrounded by those who love you. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 17. Better is a dinner... Hey, by the way, think about this at Thanksgiving. Better is a dinner of herbs, simple dinner, where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Yeah, we know that. No money in the world can surround you with those who love you. And so when the wise look at these Proverbs, they're not just platitudes. They're not just things to embroider and put on the wall. These are truths. They determine how we spend our money. They determine our budget. We aim for these things because these are the things we know are worth treasuring. God waters the one who has a spirit of generosity. And His blessings in our life make our lives full of joy and peace and satisfaction and contentment. That's what we want. So there's a secret. And the secret is that there's somebody watering those who are generous. And it's God. So why does He do it? Well, because the one who's watering is extravagantly generous. That's his nature. Why does life work this way? So contrary to our intuition, so contrary to what everybody expects, because the one who is in charge is extravagantly generous. That's the law of the world, you might say. You know, the kinds of people who head up a nation determine the culture of that nation, determine the kinds of people that are rewarded. Same thing is true of a company or a corporation. Those who are in leadership determine the culture, and those who fall in line with that culture are rewarded. That culture could be very good. It could be very bad. We've been hearing about several companies where the culture was very bad. And even though the culture was evil, in order to be rewarded, you had to fall in line with it. One which recently removed their founding CEO had a culture because the leaders, newspapers said, were immature, immoral, and wild. In fact, the news said, as a result, the company had a frat house culture. And if you wanted to be rewarded in this company, well, you had to fall in line because otherwise you weren't part of the team. You weren't playing along. So to be rewarded, you have to play along with whatever culture the leader set and the character of the leader determines that culture. In a very different example, Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes about the Soviet Union. Solzhenitsyn was a refugee from the communist tyranny under the Soviet Union. Very recently, the fall of the Soviet Empire was celebrated, an anniversary of that fall was celebrated. Solzhenitsyn describes Joseph Stalin, an iron-fisted ruler who really killed millions of his own people because of his own paranoia. Anybody who thought might threaten his power would lose their lives or be imprisoned. 
And in the Gulag Archipelago, Solzhenitsyn describes a speech that Stalin gave in 1937. As soon as the speech was finished, everybody jumped enthusiastically to their feet, almost as though they wanted to be the first to begin to clap, and they began to applaud Stalin. And they applauded, and they applauded, and they applauded, and they applauded. And after a few minutes, it became clear that there was something awkward happening on. Who would have the nerve to be the first one to stop applauding? So they kept applauding and kept applauding in honor of comrade Stalin, Solzhenitsyn writes. And then he writes, at last, after 11 minutes of nonstop clapping, the director of a paper factory finally decided enough was enough. He stopped clapping and sat down. A miracle! Immediately, everyone else also stopped clapping and sat down. Sounds good, he continues. That same night, the director of the paper factory was arrested and sent to prison for 10 years. Authorities came up with some official reason for his sentence, but during his interrogation, he was told, don't ever be the first to stop applauding. See, the leaders determine the culture. If you're going to be rewarded or you're going to be punished, it depends on who's in charge, his character or her character determines the culture of a corporation or indeed of a society. All society is affected by the one who rules. In Proverbs and in the Gospels, we're told exactly the same thing. And if God is generous, then God's generosity determines our culture. Proverbs 29, 12 says, if a ruler listens to lies, all his officials become wicked. See, the whole culture is determined. Proverbs 28, 28 says, when the wicked rise, men hide themselves. Yeah, good men, good women can't survive in that culture. Proverbs 29, verse 2 says, when the righteous thrive, that is, when they're in authority, when they have an influence on the culture, when the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. Those in charge determine the culture of everything under them what's rewarded and what's punished. And it's true of our great world. Because you see, our world, your lives and my lives are ruled by a generous king, an extravagantly, graciously generous king. And his reward is, as our proverb says, he blesses those who are generous like him. So we've seen that God loves his children, and his children in some ways bear the mark of the character of their father, and they're like him because of that. So we saw last time that God blesses peacemakers. Blessed, Jesus said, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Matthew 5, verse 9. It's his nature in us. When we love making peace with those who are at enmity with us, he blesses us because he's like that. He's a great peacemaker. There is a moral law in this universe. There's a right and a wrong it's determined not by society. You can't vote on what's right or wrong. It's not determined by a tyrant. It's not determined by the legislature. You can't say, well, it must be right because it's legal. No, there's a judge. The psalmist says righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And because there's a moral, just, righteous God, therefore there's a moral law that rules our lives. Who our king is determines the kind of world we live in. And in the same way, it says that the Lord, our God, loves generous people because he's a generous God. 
In fact, we could say it's a mark of being his children. You know, if you wonder, am I a child of God? If you love making peace, if you're willing to pay the cost to make peace, as God did in Christ Jesus, that's a mark, that's an assurance that you're a child of God. In the same way, generosity is a mark that you're a child of God because God is generous. And that impulse of extravagant generosity in you is the mark of a child of the King of Kings. And so 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 echoes our text. The point is this, Paul writes, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Did you hear this? God loves a cheerful giver. I know you've heard this, but think about that. It's a fascinating insight into the very character of the ruler of heaven and earth. What brings a smile to his life, what entertains him, is cheerful giving. What makes him open his hands with blessing is cheerful giving. He loves generosity because that's his own nature. So here's the point. There's a secret hand. There's an omnipotent hand behind the scenes. And that's why these strange principles described in Proverbs work the way they do. Now you know the secret. You know what's happening behind. The world is ruled by an exceedingly generous God. And in some ways, the scent of his nature pervades reality. Everything we do is conditioned by the God who rules our world. And so wisdom, wisdom is to be as generous as God is generous. Here's some examples in the book of Proverbs. We should be generous to the poor and the needy. In fact, the New Testament emphasizes we should begin with the family of God. Especially true here. In the New Testament, it was an organized effort. And when we were first organizing as a church, or reorganizing, you might say, as a church, we took it seriously and we established what we call the family fund. And people put money in it as God leads them, and it goes to meet the needs of our church family. And we've spent thousands and thousands of dollars investing and helping our fellow brothers and sisters in times of emergency or need. Proverbs 29:17 says this, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he, God, will pay back what has been given. So it's very interesting. It's saying it's not really giving. You're not really losing anything. It's an investment. And the broker, the banker is God. And man, he gives a great interest rate. You'll get it back from the Lord our God in the measure that we give. And then we should give even to our enemies. Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. It's coded, by the way, in Romans chapter 12. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Now, that command is absolutely clear. What follows, and you can look it up, there's a little phrase that causes much confusion. And I don't know what it means, and it's pretty clear that nobody knows exactly what it means. But don't let that keep you from what we do know is clear in this text. It says here, give to your enemy if he's hungry, give him food, give him water, and then there's this promise, and the Lord will reward you. He'll water your life if you do that. If there's someone who's mistreated you, who has responded unkindly to you, water that life with your kindness, and God will reward you. And then, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, give to the Lord. Honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of all your produce. Bring in your tithes, and it says, and your barns will be filled. Give your tithes, give your tenths, give your offerings 
because God will reward you as can't expect, not according to any clear earthly principle, but because there's a great gardener who waters those who are generous. Generosity. God is a generous God. Now, we've been looking at Proverbs through the lens of being children of God. How is God teaching us? And I hope this helps us in that regard, but also through the lens of how we can help and teach our children. So I would say, as I close, that yes, we should be generous. That's what this is teaching us. But we should also teach our children the joy of generosity. And there's much to be said about doing that, but maybe as we are approaching the Advent season, I could give just one illustration, one suggestion for how to do that. Christmas is hard. I know it's commercialized beyond belief, but it's also an opportunity to teach our children the joy of generosity. Not how many gifts you get, kids, but think about the joy of watching others open the gifts you give. And there is a great joy in that kind of generosity. And so what do the kids do? Well, we teach them all through the year. They're saving their pennies, they're saving their nickels, their dimes, their dollar bills, whatever they get and whatever means. They're not spending it on themselves and it slowly accumulates and then they go shopping. They have to think about the one they're buying a gift for. And they want to get the best thing they can possibly afford. And they make decisions, they make judgments about money. They think about what my brother, my sister, my mom, my dad might like. And finally, they wrap it up and they give it. And then they have this extravagant joy of watching it opened and watching the reaction of those who get the gift. I grew up with seven brothers and sisters, you know. So with parents, that's nine people. And we each had some kind of gift for everyone else. So you do the math. That's a lot of gifts. And then sometimes there was more than one gift for people. Yeah, so there was a lot of gifts. But I'll tell you, the exciting thing was not how many I was going to get or the other children were going to get, but we were so excited to see how people would react to what we had found to give to others. And I think, when I think back of my family and when my children were young, what I remember is not so much what they gave me, but the joy they had in giving those gifts to me. Those are the memories that will never fade. A desk clock that was bought at a tag sale for practically nothing, which I've repaired several times because it's a treasure now, because it was given with such joy, such excitement to me by one of my children. One year, Jill and the kids got together and bought me a workbench, and they were transporting it in the back of the car. And one of the girls, oh, the joy was bubbling out. She says, definitely, definitely don't look in the back of the car because there's nothing there for you. There's just a joy, there's just an extravagance. And you know what it is? It's sharing the pleasure of God. God has pleasure in being generous. And when we're generous, we experience his pleasure in our own souls. And in fact, as we do that, as we teach our children that, as we learn that ourselves, it prepares us for greater generosity in life. Generous people do uncomfortable things to bless others. You know, it's funny, but it's true that so often we are generous or we serve others only when it's convenient, but generous people do inconvenient things like Jesus going to the cross out of love and grace and generosity for us. So generous people give time when they're very busy. They give when their hearts are weak and worn out. They offer kindness. They offer kindness even to those who treat them like enemies, who are mean to them, who are hard because they have a heart of generosity. So I close with this. 
This is what it's saying. Generous people are happy people because the Father in heaven smiles on them. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father in heaven, for your generosity to us. Kind and good, beyond what we deserve, beyond what we would even have the gumption to ask for. You're extravagant, overflowing with generosity, and we thank you for it. Lord, our lives are bathed in your kindness, and we love it. We pray, Lord, for us, your children. Make us kind, generous, gracious to one another. Give us opportunities to show that generosity and allow us, Lord, this blessing of experiencing your joy, the joy of sharing your gifts, your kindness, multiplying it through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's only one prayer in the book of Proverbs. I quoted it earlier. It's Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. Lord, don't make us so rich that we forget that we need you and depend on you. And, and don't make us so poor that we become thieves and bitter against the Lord. So that's my blessing. May the Lord water you with all the blessings that you need so that your life is happy, satisfied, and contented. Amen.